If you're visiting with us, that's one of the things we hope happens every week here, is that wherever you're, whatever your week looked like, whatever you're expecting, we pray that you show up and you gather with God's people and you are surprised by God's mercy to you. Because you're reminded all over again, man, I don't deserve this. And God says, yeah, but I love to show mercy. We pray that happens week after week after week. And we're going to see that again this week in the book of Jonah. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, it's on page 863. And we are wrapping up this series in the book of Jonah today. Jonah chapter 4. I'm actually going to start one verse earlier. We're going to start reading in chapter 3, verse 10. So Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, throughout the Bible, one of the things that we see about God is that he is a master heart surgeon. He's a master heart surgeon who knows just how to probe and reveal what's lurking down deep in our hearts. And one of his favorite tools in surgery is asking questions. God often uses questions 
to cut through our protective outer layers and get to the heart of the matter. Now, it's not that he doesn't know the answers to the question. He's not asking so that he might gain information. Instead, he uses questions to reveal the problem to us, to confront, to teach, and to heal. Think about just a few examples where we see this. In the garden, after Adam and Eve sin and God comes looking for the couple, hiding from him and their guilt, what does he do? He asks questions. He says, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? What have you done? God knew all those answers. But he's using questions to draw out the problem. Or what about the end of the book of Job? When God comes to Job in the whirlwind, what does he do? He asks questions. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I told the sea how far to go? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? And on and on and on with question after question after question. Fast forward, lots of other times, but fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus comes, and what does Jesus do? He asks questions. Questions like, why do you call me good? Who do you say that I am? Which of these prove to be a neighbor? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And what do you want me to do for you? Over and over again, God confronts us and exposes our hearts by asking questions that reveal what's truly inside us. And this morning, as we come to the climax of the book of Jonah, guess what? It's structured around three questions from God to Jonah. Questions in verse 4, verse 9, and verse 11. And these questions are all doing that same thing. They're getting to the heart of what this little book is all about. So we've been talking and we've seen the depths of mercy God has towards sinners. But now, here at the end, God wants Jonah and wants us to see that his mercy to us is meant to make us merciful toward others. And he's going to show that through questions. So we're going to just look at three sections all with one question. So we're going to look at verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 9, and verses 10 and 11. Question 1, question 2, question 3. And as we come to chapter 4, we come to a passage that in many ways is parallel to chapter 2, right? Think back about where Jonah has been. I showed that chart at the beginning. In chapter 2, mercy had been experienced by an undeserving sinner. Jonah had been gobbled up by this fish and rescued. Well, in chapter 4, mercy's been experienced by many undeserving sinners. Nineveh's been spared. In chapter 2, Jonah responds to that mercy in prayer. And in chapter 4, Jonah responds to that mercy in prayer. But there's a pretty big difference, right? Chapter 2 is worship. Chapter 4 is anger. And why that is has to do with who it is that's shown mercy. And that's what God is trying to put his finger on. So let's look closer at this situation together. Look down at verse 1. In verse 1, we find something really strange. 
We find a preacher who's just preached to the toughest congregation in his life and the people responded to his message with mass repentance. I mean, this guy should be floating on air, right? This is the highlight of his preaching career. Let's look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Huh. Not what we would expect. And what was it that displeased Jonah so much? Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they, Nineveh, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah is angry that God showed mercy to those Ninevites, to those wicked, sinful, idol-worshiping terrorists who want to destroy his country. God showed them mercy. Are you kidding me? He's so mad, in fact, that when it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly, that's kind of like cleaned up nice language. It literally says it was a great evil to Jonah. Jonah looks at what God, let's keep this in mind, what God has done in saving these wicked Ninevites and it infuriates him. And he says, that was evil. God, what you just did, the fact that you showed mercy to them, that's wrong, God. And his anger comes out in prayer to God. Listen to how he prays in verses 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Hear him, even here, like, when I, was at the, when I was in my country, when I was in the good place, when I was there, isn't this what I said? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You can almost hear him spitting as he's praying this and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, Jonah should win, like, some Academy Awards. I mean, he's, like, the most dramatic guy in all the Bible. I mean, he, he puts, oh, I'm gonna, I was going to make a comparison with teenage girls, but I'm sorry, teenage girls. <laughs> it's just the stereotype that you're all a bit dramatic. Not you guys. Other teenage girls are dramatic. And that's what Jonah is here. He's just, he's all over the map. And for the first time, though, we get to hear Jonah's motives, right? We've assumed them, as, as a reader, if you were just hearing Jonah for the first time, that you don't have the ending yet, all along, you've got some suspicions about why Jonah's doing what he's, but he's never come out and said it. Here we learn for the first time the motives for his earlier disobedience. With his own lips, he tells us why he refused to go to Nineveh. And why he ran the other way. And why was it? Because he knows what God is like. That's why. He knows that God is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents from disaster. And Jonah was terrified that if this gracious God sent him to the people that he hated, he's probably going to show them mercy. Why? Because that's what this God does. Now, Jonah is pretty messed up throughout this book, right? He's not a poster child of like, be like Jonah. But here's actually one way Jonah puts us to shame. He is so utterly convinced 
that when the God of grace and mercy reveals his word to the worst of sinners, God is willing and able to save them. He's convinced of it. He knows it. He knows the heart of God. How freely and lavishly he shows mercy to rebels. But he hates it. At least when it comes to the idea of God showing that mercy to the people he thinks don't deserve it. Now there's at least two ways that Jonah's anger here is incredibly inconsistent. I mean, and I say inconsistent with like three underlines under. I mean, like it's off the charts inconsistent. The first way has to do with how he describes God here. When Jonah talks about what God is like, he's actually quoting from Exodus 34, where God reveals himself to Moses on the mountain. But it's worth considering the context of what's going on back in Exodus. So flip in your Bibles back to Exodus 32. We're going to take a little walk down Israel's memory lane here. So just to catch you up to speed, in Exodus, God has rescued a people from slavery, right? They're in this hopeless, desperate situation. They cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. He rescues them from slavery. He brings them to Mount Sinai. And there, he calls Moses up on the mountain, and he's giving Moses his law. God has actually said, I'm making you my people, and I'm going to tell you how to live as my people. I'm giving you my word. But in Exodus 32, while Moses is still on the mountain, receiving the word of the Lord, guess what the people do? They go their own way and rebel against God by making a golden calf. So Moses is up here. They've just been rescued. He's getting the word of the Lord and they're down there throwing their jewelry into a smeltering pot and making a golden calf. And that infuriates God. Listen to Exodus 32 verse 7. Look down there. And listen to how God actually distances himself from the Israelites. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, Moses, whom you, Moses, brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So here we've got this people who turned away from God in rebellion. And now God's wrath is burning hot against them. God's ready to wipe them out. But someone intervenes. Moses stands in between the people and God and prays for them. And he asks God to show mercy on this undeserving people. And do you know what it says God did for Israel? Wicked, rebellious people, someone prays for mercy, and listen to what it says God did for Israel. Look down to Exodus 32, verse 14, and listen to these words carefully. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. 
The Lord relented from the disaster that he said he would do and he didn't do it. Where have I heard that? Isn't that almost exactly what Jonah 3.10 said about Nineveh? And don't think that's a coincidence that Jonah's got that text on his mind. Because Exodus goes on. So God relents, says, all right, fine, I won't wipe them out. But listen, I will let you go to the promised land, Israel, but I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you guys, you are so wicked and rebellious, I will end up wiping you out. So you know what Moses, the leader of Israel, tells the people to do? He tells them to show their sorrow and repentance over their sin by taking off all their fancy clothes and jewelry and seeking the Lord. Kind of sounds like the king of Nineveh saying, getting down, taking off all his royal robes, telling people put on sackcloth and call out mightily to God. And as Moses asks the Lord to go with him, he also makes a request of God. Look down now at Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God agrees to show Moses his glory. He's like, fine, I will show you the beauty, of wonder, beauty and wonder of what I'm like. And then the same breath where he says, I'll proclaim before you my name, which is Yahweh. I am who I am. Meaning I am utterly free and unacted upon by anyone else. No one makes me be who I am or do what I do. I am God. And in the same breath, he fleshes that out by saying, one of the things that mean is, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, I'm completely free to be who I am. And part of my right is to show mercy to whoever I want. So Moses hears this. He climbs into his cleft in the rock, right? As God declares what he's like to Moses, drop your eyes down. Exodus 34, here's where we get it. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is where Jonah got his view of what God is like. Like he didn't make it up. He hadn't just heard it. Like he's, this is what God said. You want to know what I'm like? That's what I'm like. From this event, and what happened in this event? A sinful people rebels against God and deserve to be consumed by his burning wrath, but God instead reveals himself as a God gracious and merciful and spares an undeserving people. That's the foundation of how Jonah's people knew what God was like from experiencing his mercy, rescuing them from the judgment they deserved. Would kind of think it would create some categories for what happens in Nineveh, right? But that's not all. That's one way it's ironic is how his people had been affected by God's mercy. But it wasn't just Jonah's people that had experienced God's mercy. In chapter 2, Jonah himself experienced God as a God merciful and gracious. He had personally rebelled and turned away from God. And he was facing the judgment he deserved as he sank deeper and deeper 
into the sea. Yet God in his deep mercy brought Jonah's life up from the pit. And chapter two is Jonah's prayer of celebration and thanksgiving of God's mercy in his own life. He's tasted this mercy for himself. So Jonah knows the mercy of God in rescuing his people and he knows the mercy of God in rescuing him personally. So why in the world is he so angry about God showing that same mercy? Because he's showing it to a people that Jonah can't stand. God is showing mercy to people that Jonah knows they don't deserve it. Remember, Jonah is a patriot through and through. And these people are against his nation. These are Israel's enemies. They would destroy his country if they could. How dare God show mercy to a people like that? It makes him angry with God. And as we read his anger, his anger is meant to shock us and make us a little uncomfortable so that we as the reader kind of want to distance ourselves from Jonah. Like, yeah, Jonah, that's, that's, that's not good, Jonah. We don't want to be associated with him and his, his ugly nationalism. But the truth is, it's all too easy for each of us to have our own Nineveh. Our own group of people that we think they don't deserve God's mercy. Some group of people that we think the way they are, what they do, that's sinful and it's wrong. Some group that opposes God's people and seeks to do them harm. People that are just so wrong and so wicked, we think they don't deserve anything but God's judgment. And Jonah is meant to make us search our own hearts and ask, who are the people that I think don't deserve mercy? Who is it for you? Is it people of another race? Is it those crazy liberals or those fundamentalist conservatives? Is it those entitled rich people or those lazy poor? Is it those educated elitists or those stubborn, uneducated people? Is it Muslims? Is it Mormons? Is it atheists? Is it homosexuals? Transgender? People who refuse to get vaccinated? Or those who insist on mask mandates? Is it those young people that just don't understand? Or is it those old people who just don't understand? Is it the countries like Afghanistan or Iran, probably just harboring terrorists? Is it Mexicans? Is it North Koreans? Is it criminals? Is it sex offenders? Is it terrorists? Is it addicts? Who are your Ninevites? Who are the people that you look at and say, they don't deserve mercy? They should get what's coming to them. Are there people that it would disappoint you if you found out God was going to change their lives? Are there people that the idea of God being kind to, to them would upset you? Just like Jonah, if we are in Christ, we have been shown God's mercy firsthand. When we were running, 
When we hopped our ships to Tarshish, we were running and he sought us and he bought us with his redeeming blood. We didn't deserve anything from God but wrath for our sin. And yet Jesus paid it all. Every last bit. We've seen the heart of God demonstrated on the cross. And like Jonah, we haven't just experienced it personally, but corporately. We belong to a people that has tasted God's mercy. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, we've been saved. Friends, there is nothing about who we are, who we were, or what we've done, what we haven't done, that made us deserve to be saved. We've all experienced sheer mercy. And that's what Jonah had experienced, which is why it's so appalling to us as we read this book to see Jonah look at the Ninevites and think, God shouldn't be merciful to them because they don't deserve it. Because we know he doesn't deserve it. And that's why it's so appalling when Christians talk about groups of people that we don't think should get God's mercy because that's what makes it mercy. The fact that none of us deserve it. But instead, we too often find ourselves uncomfortable or even angry at the prospect of those people being shown mercy. We think, doesn't God know what they're like? When really the better question is, don't we know what God is like? Jonah did, and it made him angry. It made him angry that God would show mercy to his enemies. It literally says here that he was burning with anger. We know what that's like, right? Where you're just seething and you're, you feel like you're on fire. You're so hot. So in verse 3, he even asked God to take his life because he can't bear the thought of living in a world where God would show mercy to people like that. And when he says that, Jonah is challenging God's right to show mercy to whom he will show mercy. God, you can't do that. No, 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 God, that is not, that's off limits. And God says, I am who I am, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. When Jonah says this, God simply responds with a question. Verse four, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Another translation is, do you have the right to be angry? Is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry about this? And notice Jonah doesn't answer. The question just sort of hangs there. You can almost feel Jonah's internal angst and anger. So the question goes unanswered, but it won't be the last time that question is asked. So now that ends our first scene in chapter 4. Now in verses 5 to 9 you get your second scene and in these verses God's going to use an object lesson to probe even deeper into Jonah's heart. Let's look first at verses 5 and 6. It says Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. 
Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. All right, so here Jonah delivers his message. He sees them repent, but he, and as he leaves Nineveh on the east side, he started, came in from the west and left on the east, he, he's hanging out there waiting to see what will happen. Remember, his message was yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So even though he's seen Nineveh respond in widespread repentance and change, there's still part of Jonah's hoping, okay, but maybe, maybe that wasn't enough. Maybe God will still wipe them out. So here's Jonah here with his countdown timer, just waiting for 40 days to tick by so those Ninevites are going to get what's coming to them. But outside the city, it's not like a, a pleasant place in this part of the world. It's, it's, a, it's an arid, rough landscape. Not really a lot of trees. Very hot. And so the sun's beating down on Jonah, so he tries to build himself a little booth to protect himself. But it's not really working that great. But then look what God did. He appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. And I want you to notice here, in this little detail in this story, both the sovereignty and the mercy of God. First, his sovereignty. God appointed a plant. Now, if that word is causing any bells to go off, that's good because that's the exact same word as in chapter 1, verse 17, where he appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. God's still saying, look, I'm in charge of all of this, guys. Everything out here in the world, every detail of creation I'm ruling over, and I'm going to use any part of it I want as part of my purposes in Jonah's life. Who is a God like this? That he just makes a plant grow up overnight? You could give me a year and I can't make a plant grow. And God does it in a night? And it's big enough to shade Jonah. So it's not like, oh, he just broke through the ground. It went from nothing to, oh, this is nice. I have something to sit under. In a night. Who is this God? And not just what sovereignty and what power, but what mercy. Here's Jonah sulking about God's kindness to Nineveh. Can't believe God would show mercy to people like that. He's still hoping to see them get wiped out. And yet, God provides him with a miraculous plant to shade him. And it says, save him from his discomfort. You talk about undeserved mercy. And how does Jonah respond? says he was exceedingly glad because of the plan. I mean, this is strong language. Jonah is thrilled at God's mercy. He rejoices in it. It delights him. Why? Because that mercy benefited him. Do you see the jarring inconsistency in Jonah here? Here's Jonah. He's got his destroy Nineveh t-shirt on. He's posting on Facebook about how awful those Nineveh, Ninevites are. Can you believe what they did? He's watching his YouTube videos from his favorite Israelite nationalists talking about how great Israel is and how enemies like Nineveh only deserve to be wiped out. And at the same time, he's singing worship songs about God's mercy with a smile on his face 
Because God's mercy has given him a little bit more comfort and shade. What? Like we're meant to feel this and say, what is going on here? Jonah loves mercy when it benefits him. But he hates it when it benefits those he doesn't like. Jonah loves mercy when it comes to him, but he loves justice when it comes to others. God, give them what they deserve. God, please don't give me what I deserve. And God is going to help Jonah see just how crazy this inconsistency is. Look at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So here's Jonah. Jonah's loving his shade plant. I mean, what a mercy. What a, what a great turn of events. That I'm, I'm out here. I, this trip to Nineveh went the way I hoped it wouldn't. The people responded. But I'm still holding out hope that they're going to get wiped out. But man, is it hot out here. <gasps> Where did this plant come from? Oh, this is nice. This is great. I can't believe how good this is. I love this plant. But then there's that word appointed again. God appointed a worm to attack the plant. God gave the plant, and God took away the plant. And then God appointed, same word, something else. He appointed a scorching east wind. Now, you got to understand how awful this wind is. Like, we have something out west here called the Santa Ana winds that, like, contribute to a lot of wildfires and stuff. So we know, like, okay, that's, that's bad, but... These winds in that part of the world, they're, they're called Sirocco winds. Maybe Sirocco. If you know, don't, don't correct me because I'm not sure which it is. But these winds were so, are so bad, we still have them, that they, I don't understand the science behind this, but they actually change the serotonin levels in people. So they affect your behavior. Like what I was reading about, them, it says that exposure to these Sirocco winds can lead to exhaustion depression, and even dealing with episodes of unreality. Some courts, like there were these Muslim courts in this part of the world that would actually reduce the sentence for crimes committed during the times this wind was blowing because of how much it affected people. They're like, normally that's 20 years. Oh, you did it when the wind was blowing? Okay, three months, you're, you're good. We get it. That's how bad these winds are, right? It's not just like a blustery day. It is a horrible, oppressive, exhausting, unrelenting heat. So God uses this worm he appointed to take away the plant that he appointed and instead appoints a scorching wind and sun to beat down on Jonah's head. Now most likely, God's using another one of those word pictures here. Because, remember, God asked Jonah, is it right for you to burn with anger? Now, because of his anger, he's literally burning in the sun's heat. Jonah is not 
happy about it. The same Jonah that hours earlier was exceedingly glad because of the plant that offered him some comfort is now asking God that he might die because the plant is gone? When he experiences mercy, he's smiling and worshiping. And when God takes away the plant that he never deserved in the first place, he's furious enough to want to die. How dare God destroy his beloved plant? Jonah loved this plant. He delighted in it. It brought him joy. It was important to him. And now it was destroyed. Jonah is angry. So God asks him the same question in verse 9. Do you do well to be angry? Are you right, Jonah, to be angry for the plant? To which this time, Jonah can't help but reply. He says, yes, I'm right to be angry. Angry enough to die. Now notice, this is the first time in the book of Jonah that Jonah has expressed concern over something perishing. In chapter 1, the pagan sea captain tells Jonah, hey, get up and pray. We're trying everything so that the men on the ship might not perish. Then later in that same chapter, the sailors pray right before they throw Jonah in. Remember, he said, you got to throw me in. They say, okay, but they say, like, God, don't hold this against us so that we might not perish. Then chapter 3, the king of Nineveh tells the people, we got to repent. Why? So that we may not perish. And all along, the sea captain, the sailors, the Ninevites, Jonah's shown no concern for any of these people. The pagans, the unbelieving people, they're all concerned about who might or might not perish. Jonah doesn't care. But now that his plant has perished, oh, now he has deep and passionate concern about it perishing. Jonah reveals that he cares deeply about this plant. And that perfectly sets up God's point in these last verses. This is where God has been headed this whole book. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So Jonah has shown that he has compassion for this plant. He pitied it. He cared deeply about what happened to it. And he couldn't stand to see it destroyed. He felt all that compassion for this plant even though he did nothing to create it. He did nothing to keep it alive. He didn't make it grow. It was only alive for a single day. And yet Jonah felt pity and compassion for it. And then God levels Jonah with a question. You have such deep concern and pity for this plant, Jonah. Should not I pity Nineveh? That great city? Jonah, there are more than 120,000 people there. 120,000 people, Jonah, that I created. 120,000 people that bear my image. 
120,000 people who I have caused to grow and kept them alive. 120,000 people who are so desperately stuck in their sin and don't have any idea how to escape from its power over them or the punishment that it will bring. Should I not pity them, Jonah? These people are so hopelessly stuck in their rebellion. That's what it means when it says they don't know their right hand from their left. It doesn't mean they're like completely unintelligent. It means in matters of moral discernment. They're like they don't understand how to live a godly life. They don't know how to rectify what they've broken. They're in a mess and they have no idea how to get out of it. That doesn't make them innocent. He's, that's not what God is saying. They're guilty for their rebellion. But they don't know how to change or escape from God's wrath. And notice the reaction God has to this. God looks at these wicked, evil Ninevites. And they are. And he doesn't respond in anger or condemnation. Instead, their plight draws out his compassion and his pity. It arouses mercy in God's heart. He finds warmth and care and kindness welling up in him. Should not I pity them, he asks. And friends... This is God's heart toward us. Behold the heart of your God. A heart that looks at our sin and our failures and rather than just waiting to let us have it, just go ahead, go ahead person, step out of line, sin and see what I do. Instead of just giving us what we deserve, see your God filled with compassion. And mercy towards sinners. A God that invites us to come. Who says, come ye sinners. Poor and needy. Weak and wounded. Sick and sore. Jesus ready. He's ready. Stands to save you. Full of pity. Love and power. Hear the Savior say, your strength indeed is small. Child of weakness. Watch and pray. Find in me your all in all. Friends, God doesn't simply reject us in our sins, saying, that's it. You blew it. You turned away. You did what I told you not to do. Justice demands you're going to get it. Instead, he comes to us in mercy, even while we were his sinful enemies. Romans 5 tells us that God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Friends, Jesus shows us mercy by paying it all. Justice was served. Because the part of Exodus 34 that Jonah leaves out is the end where God will by no means clear the guilty. God doesn't sweep our sin under the rug. That's not what his mercy means. It has to be paid for. So the dilemma is how can he be merciful and compassionate and just? It's the cross where love and justice and mercy meet. Jesus pays for all our sin and he takes the wrath of God that we deserve so that we can receive the mercy of God that we don't. And friends, seeing sinners living in darkness and hopelessness and despair doesn't spark hatred 
or condemnation from God. Instead, it draws out his heart of pity, compassion, and mercy. And the question that Jonah leaves us with is, does it do the same in us? When we see people living in opposition to God, doing things that are sinful, hear me, I'm not, I'm not excusing their actions, but we see people doing things that are sinful, making decisions that are wicked, doing things that we can't stand, that just infuriate us. How will we respond? Will we respond with judgment and anger and condemnation and I hope they get what they deserve? Or will we be merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful? The reader of Jonah is left with a choice. The book ends with this question. And the reader is meant to ask, will we copy Jonah's embarrassing hatred, self-centeredness, and nationalism? Or will we see the world as God sees it, as people greatly in need of mercy? God asks, should not I pity them? But the question that's left ringing in our ears after we've experienced the depths of God's mercy and pity is, should not we pity others as well? After all, our God is a God gracious and merciful and his mercy is meant to make us merciful. So should we not pity them as well? Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us to receive this word as a call to mercy? Father, we confess that we can be too much like Jonah. We can love mercy, thrill over it, delight in it, talk about how good it is in our lives, and we can be so slow to extend it to others. We can create our own Nineveh people or groups of people that we just, we would rather see get justice than get mercy. God, would you change us? Would you soften our hearts and would you make us more like you? Would you make us merciful as you are merciful? When we look at the world and see sin and wickedness, would we grieve and would we have compassion? And would we seek to take the good news of mercy to those people that we don't think deserve it because we know we didn't either? So God, now as we come to your table, we thank you for mercy. And we thank you that we can celebrate it because you showed mercy to us on the cross. So we ask you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.